When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 2. Good for Nothing The November night is darkest, foggiest, wettest, and windiest, out on the open road that leads into Slopperton. A dreary road, at the best of times, this Slopperton road, and dreariest of all in one spot, about a mile and a half out of the town. Upon this spot stands a solitary house, known as the Black Mill, It was once the cottage of a miller, and the mill still stands, though in disuse. The cottage had been altered and improved within the last few years, and made into a tolerable-sized house, a dreary, rambling, tumble-down place, it is true, but still with some pretension about it. It was occupied at this time by a widow lady, a Mrs. Marwood, once the owner of a large fortune, which had nearly all been squandered by the dissipation of her only son. This son had long left Slopperton. His mother had not heard of him for years. Some said he had gone abroad. She tried to hope this, but sometimes she mourned him as dead. She lived in modest style with one old female servant who had been with her since her marriage and had been faithful through every change of fortune, as these common and unlearned creatures, strange to say, sometimes are. It happened at this very time Mrs. Marwood had just received the visit of a brother who had returned home from the East Indies with a large fortune. This brother, Mr. Monahue Harding, had on his landing in England hastened to seek out his only sister, and the arrival of the wealthy man at the solitary house on the Slopperton Road had been a nine-day's wonder for the good citizens of Slopperton. He brought with him only one servant. His visit was to be a short one, as he was about buying an estate in the south of England on which he intended to reside with his widowed sister. Slopperton had a great deal to say about Mr. Harding, Slopperton gave him credit for the possession of unaccounted and uncountable lacks of rupees. But Slopperton wouldn't give him credit for the possession of the hundredth part of an ounce of liver. Slopperton left cards at the black mill and had serious thoughts of getting up a deputation to invite the rich East Indian to represent its inhabitants at the great Congress of Westminster. But both Mr. Harding and Mrs. Marwood kept aloof from Slopperton, and were set down accordingly as mysterious, not to say dark-minded individuals, forthwith. The brother and sister are seated in the little warm, lamp-lit drawing-room at the Black Mill this dark November night. She is a woman who has once been handsome, but whose beauty has been fretted away by anxieties and suspenses, which wear out the strongest hope, as water wears away the hardest rock. The Anglo-Indian very much resembles her, but though his face is that of an invalid, it is not careworn. It is the face of a good man who has a hope so strong that neither fear nor trouble can disquiet him. 
he is speaking. And you have not heard from your son? For nearly seven years. Seven years of cruel suspense. Seven years during which every knock at yonder door seems to have beaten a blow upon my heart. Every footstep on yonder garden walk seems to have trodden down hope. And you do not think him dead? I hope and pray not. Not dead, impenitent. Not dead without my blessing. Not gone away from me forever, without one pressure of the hand, one prayer for my forgiveness, one whisper of regret for all he has made me suffer. He was very wild, then, very dissipated. He was a reprobate and a gambler. He squandered his money like water. He had bad companions, I know, but was not himself wicked at heart. The very night he ran away, the night I saw him for the last time, I'm sure he was sorry for his bad courses. He said something to that effect, said his road was a dark one, but it had only one end, and he must go on to the end. And you made no remonstrance? I was tired of remonstrance, tired of prayer, and had wearied out my soul with hope deferred. My dear Agnes, and this poor boy, this wretched misguided boy, heaven have pity upon him and restore him. Heaven have pity upon every wanderer this dismal and pitiless night. Heaven, indeed, have pity upon that wanderer out on the bleak high road to Slopperton, out on the shelterless Slopperton road, a mile away from the Black Mill, the wanderer is a young man whose garments of the shabby genteel order are worst of all fitted to keep out the cruel weather. A handsome young man, or a man who has once been handsome, but on whom riotous days and nights, drunkenness, recklessness, and folly have had their dire effects. He is struggling to keep a bad cigar alight, and when it goes out, which is about twice in five minutes, he utters expressions which in Slopperton are thought very wicked, and consigns that good city with its virtuous citizens to a very bad neighborhood. He talks to himself between his struggles with the cigar. Footsore and weary, hungry and thirsty, cold and ill, it is not a very hopeful way for the only son of a rich man to come back to his native place after seven years' absence. I wonder what star presides over my vagabond existence. If I knew, I'd shake my fist at it, he muttered, as he looked up at two or three feeble luminaries glimmering through the rain and fog. Another mile to the black mill. And then, what will she say to me? What can she say to me but to curse me? What have I earned by such a life as mine except a mother's curse? His cigar chose this very moment of all others to go out. If the bad three halfpenny Havana had been a sentient thing with reasoning powers, it might have known better. He threw it aside into a ditch with an oath. He slouched his hat over his eyes, thrust one hand into the breast of his coat. He had a stick cut from some hedgerow in the other, and walked with a determined, though a weary air, onward through slush and mire towards the black mill, from which already the lighted windows shone through the darkness like so many beacons. "'on through slush and mire, with a weary and slouching step. "'No matter, it is a step for which his mother has waited for seven long years. 
it is the step whose ghostly echo on the garden walk has smitten so often on her heart and trodden out the light of hope. But surely the step comes on now, full, surely, and for good or ill. Whether for good or ill comes this long-watched for step, this bad November night, who shall say? In a quarter of an hour, the wanderer stands in the little garden of the black mill. He has not courage to knock at the door. It might be opened by a stranger. He might hear something he dare not whisper to his own heart. He might hear something which would strike him down dead upon the threshold. He sees the light in the drawing-room windows. He approaches and hears his mother's voice. It is a long time since he's uttered a prayer, but he falls on his knees by the long French window and breathes a thanksgiving. That voice is not still. What shall he do? What can he hope from his mother, so cruelly abandoned? At this moment, Mr. Harding opens the window to look out at the dismal night. As he does so, the young man falls fainting, exhausted, into the room. Draw a curtain over the agitation and the bewilderment of that scene. The almost broken-hearted mother's joy is too sacred for words, and the passionate tears of the prodigal son, who shall measure the remorseful agony of a man whose life has been one long career of recklessness, and who sees his sin written in his mother's face. The mother and son sit together, talking gravely, hand in hand, for two long hours. He tells her, not of all his follies, but of all his regrets, his punishment, his anguish, his penitence, and his resolutions for the future. Surely it is for good and good alone that he has come over a long and dreary road through toil and suffering to kneel here at his mother's feet and build up fair schemes for the future. The old servant, who has known Richard from a baby, shares in his mother's joy. After the slight supper which the weary wanderer is induced to eat, her brother and her son persuade Mrs. Marwood to retire to rest, and left, tete-a-tete, the uncle and nephew sit down to discuss a bottle of old Madeira by the sea-coal fire. "'My dear Richard,' the young man's name is Richard, Daredevil Dick, he's been called by his wild companions. My dear Richard, says Mr. Harding, very gravely, I'm about to say something to you which I trust you will take in good part. I am not so used to kind words from good men that I am likely to take anything you can say amiss. You will not, then, doubt the joy I feel in your return this night if I ask you what are your plans for the future?' The young man shook his head. Poor Richard. He had never in his life had any definite plan for the future, or he might not have been what he was that night. My poor boy, I believe you have a noble heart, but you have led a wasted life. This must be repaired. Richard shook his head again. He was very hopeless of himself. I am good for nothing, he said. I am a bad lot. I wonder they don't hang such men as me. I wonder they don't hang such men. He uttered this reckless speech in his own reckless way, as if it would be rather a good joke to be hung up out of the way and done for. My dear boy, thank heaven you have returned to us. Now I have a plan to make a man of you yet. 
Richard looked up this time with a hopeful light in his dark eyes. He was hopeless at five minutes past ten. He was radiant when the minute hand had moved on to the next figure on the dial. He was one of those men whose bad and good angels have a sharp fight and a constant struggle, but whom we all hope to see saved at last. "'I have a plan which has occurred to me since your unexpected arrival this evening,' continued his uncle. "'Now if you stay here, your mother, who has a trick, as all loving mothers have, of fancying you are still a little boy in a pinafore and frock, your mother will be for having you loiter about from morning till night with nothing to do and nothing to care for. You will fall in again with all your old slopperton companions and all those companions' bad habits.' "'This isn't the way to make a man of you, Richard.' "'Richard, very radiant by this time, thinks not. "'My plan is that you start off tomorrow morning, "'before your mother is up, "'with a letter of introduction "'which I will give you to an old friend of mine, "'a merchant in the town of Gardenford, forty miles from here. "'At my request he will give you a berth in his office "'and will treat you as if you were his own son.' "'You can come over here to see your mother as often as you like, "'and if you choose to work hard as a merchant's clerk "'so as to make your own fortune, "'I know an old fellow just returned from the East Indies "'with not enough liver to keep him alive many years, "'who will leave you another fortune to add to it. "'What do you say, Richard? Is it a bargain?' "'My dear generous uncle,' Richard cries, "'shaking the old man by the hand. "'Was it a bargain?' "'Of course it was. "'A merchant's office. "'The very thing for Richard. "'He would work hard, work night and day to repair the past, "'and to show the world there was stuff in him to make a man, "'and a good man yet. "'Poor Richard, half an hour ago, wishing to be hung and put out of the way, "'now full of radiance and hope, while the good angel has the best of it. "'You must not begin your new life without money, Richard,' I shall, therefore, give you all I have in the house. I think I cannot better show my confidence in you and my certainty that you will not return to your old habits than by giving you this money. Richard looks. He cannot speak his gratitude. The old man conducts his nephew upstairs to his bedroom, an old-fashioned apartment, in one window of which is a handsome cabinet, half-desk, half-bureau. He unlocks this, and takes from it a pocketbook containing one hundred and thirty-odd pounds in small notes and gold, and two bills for one hundred pounds each of an Anglo-Indian bank in the city. Take this, Richard. Use the broken cash as you require it for present purposes in purchasing such an outfit as becomes my nephew. And on your arrival in Gardenford, place the bills in the bank for future exigencies. And... As I wish your mother to know nothing of our little plan until you are gone, the best thing you can do is to start before anyone is up tomorrow morning. I will start at daybreak. I can leave a note for my mother. No, no, said the uncle. I will tell her all. You can write directly when you reach your destination. Now, you will think it cruel of me to ask you to leave your home on the very night of your return to it, "'but it is quite as well, my dear boy, "'to strike while the iron's hot. "'If you remain here, your good resolutions "'may be vanquished by old influences. "'For the best resolution, Richard, "'is but a seed, 
and if it doesn't bear the fruit of a good action, it is less than worthless, for it is a lie, and promises what it doesn't perform. I've a higher opinion of you than to think that you've brought no better fruit of your penitence home to your loving mother than empty resolutions. I believe you have a steady determination to reform. You only do me justice in that belief, sir. I ask nothing better than the opportunity of showing that I am in earnest. Mr. Harding is quite satisfied and once more suggests that Richard should depart very early the next day. I will leave this house at five in the morning, said the nephew. A train starts for Gardenford about six. I shall creep out quietly and not disturb anyone. I know the way out of the dear old house. I can get out of the drawing-room window and need not unlock the hall door, for I know that good stupid old woman Martha sleeps with the key under her pillow. Ah, by the by, where does Martha mean to put you tonight? In the little back parlor, I think, she said, the room under this. The uncle and nephew went down to this little parlor where they found old Martha making up a bed on the sofa. You will sleep very comfortably here for tonight, Master Richard, said the old woman. But if my mistress doesn't have the ceiling mended before long, there'll be an accident some day. They all looked up at the ceiling. The plaster had fallen in several places, and there were one or two cracks of considerable size. If it was daylight, grumbled the old woman, you could see through into Mr. Harding's bedroom, for his worship won't have a carpet. His worship said he had not been used to carpets in India, and liked the sight of Mrs. Martha's snow-white boards. And it's hard to keep them white, sir, I can tell you, for when I scour the floor of that room, the water runs through and spoils the furniture down here. But Daredevil Dick didn't seem to care much for the dilapidated ceiling. The Madeira, his brightened prospects, and the excitement he had gone through all combined to make him thoroughly wearied out. He shook his uncle's hand with a brief but energetic expression of gratitude and then flung himself half-dressed upon the bed. "'There is an alarm clock in my room,' said the old man, "'which I will set for five o'clock. "'I always sleep with my door open, "'so you'll be sure to hear it go down. "'It won't disturb your mother, "'for she sleeps at the other end of the house. "'And now, good night, and God bless you, my boy.' "'He is gone, and the returned prodigal is asleep. "'His handsome face has lost half its look of dissipation and care "'in the renewed light of hope.' His black hair is tossed off his broad forehead, and it is a fine, candid countenance. Oh, there is stuff in him to make a man yet, though he says they should hang such fellows as he. His uncle has retired to his room, where his servant assists at his toilet for the night. This servant sleeps in a little bed in the dressing-room adjoining his master's apartment, and cannot speak one word of English, so on this bad November night, with the wind howling round the walls, as if it were an angry, unadmitted guest that clamored to come in, with the rain beating on the roof as if it had a special purpose and was bent on flooding the old house, there is peace and happiness and a returned and penitent wanderer at the desolate old black mill. The wind this night seems to howl with a peculiar significance, 
but nobody has the key to its strange language. And if, in every shrill, dissonant shriek, it tries to tell a ghastly secret, or to give a timely warning, it tries in vain, for no one heeds or understands. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.